Acts 18, after these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. That's the Apostle Paul, Acts 18. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers, that is, Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla. Now one thing about the Bible is that it tells it uh, like it is. It doesn't try to cover the faults of its characters. It just paints the heroes of the Bible, warts and all. And so that's why you have Noah's drunkenness and, uh, and Isaac's deception and, uh, and uh, Samson's lust and Moses' bad temper and uh, David's adultery and Simon Peter's uh, timidity and cowardice. It, it just tells it like it is. And somebody said that this is one way that you know the Bible is authentic because it doesn't try to cover up the faults and the failures of its characters. On the other hand, it presents the other side of the coin. It presents the ideal where it is found. For example, the Bible gives us the examples of many kinds of marriages. There is Samson the Philistine woman, David and Abigail, Adam and Eve, and it pictures these marriages just as they are, with all the inadequacies and inequities of them. But on the other hand, it does picture some marriages that are ideal, that are right on target, that are, the, uh, uh, that are dedicated to the divine plan, that, that have in them the characteristics of a marriage as God desired and planned for it to be. And the marriage of Aquila and Priscilla is just one of those. They are these young tent makers that are fellow workers of the Apostle Paul with him in this place. And they are mentioned six times in the New Testament. The first time they are mentioned, Paul introduces them in the book of Acts chapter 18 and he tells us that they were driven out of Rome under a decree by Claudius and they went with the Apostle Paul from Corinth down to Ephesus. And there they stayed with him for a long time. And they uh, made tents and repaired tents together. They're mentioned another time. By the way, while they were in Ephesus, it was there that Aquila and Priscilla called Apollos off, got Apollos off to the side and tutored him in the Christian faith. It's a beautiful story, really. The second time we find the mention of Aquila and Priscilla is in the epilogue of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And Paul refers to them and says that the it refers to the church that is in their house. And so obviously this married couple had, had, had a place for the church to come together and to, con, to congregate, little struggling band of Christians in Corinth. In the book of Romans, chapter 16, there's this marvelous witness concerning Aquila and Priscilla. And the Apostle Paul rejoices in several things about their life. He rejoices in their commitment to Jesus Christ and calls them fellow workers with Him in the Lord Jesus. He rejoices in their courage and he says, For my sake you stuck your neck out, you laid your necks out on the line, 
and he rejoices in the special influence, the wide sphere of influence that Aquila and Priscilla had, for he says to them that all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks because of you. So here was a couple, a marriage, that had it all together. Now there are at least three things in the marriage of Aquila and Priscilla that are always present, that are found in marriages that have it all together. Now, if you're thinking about or one day you plan to, to, you know, to engage in this marvelous journey of matrimony, I want you to mark this down. And if you are married, I'd like for you to just take note of two or three things that are, that are present in a marriage that is, that is according to the divine plan of God. First of all, they experienced togetherness. You search the Scripture, and I, I challenge you to find one time where these people are not mentioned together. You won't ever see a time when Aquila's name is mentioned without Priscilla, and vice versa. There are three times when her name is mentioned first, and that's rarely found in the Scriptures, that the woman's name precedes the man. But you won't find a single time when this couple is mentioned that they're not mentioned together. It is suggestive of the fact that they had found a unique intimacy and togetherness and oneness. It is what God planned or desired for every marriage. It's what Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 means. And it's the reason why God made Eve for Adam. She, she, she brought them together in order that they might experience this sense of oneness and intimacy and togetherness that He desired for that couple. So that the woman was taken not from the man's head, lest she be superior, or from his foot, lest she be inferior, but she was taken from his side as his equal and as his companion, from under his arm to be protected, and from next to his heart to be cherished and to be loved. They were to find a oneness and an intimacy. And he said, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Literally glued together in this special kind of relationship. A relationship of intimacy, togetherness, and oneness. I wonder if that's missing from the modern marriage. Why, why do you think that so many marriages just don't feel that there is this oneness or intimacy that, that's the ideal that ought to be there? Well, perhaps it's because we've misunderstood the meaning of the word togetherness. Now, togetherness does not mean to being together geographically. I mean, you can be together and not be together. I, I, you know, I know, I've known some couples who are together all the time. I mean, every night they're together. They're sitting on the same couch. He, she's reading a book. He's watching TV. They're together, but they're not together. Uh, nor is it to be found only in sexual relationships. Kleinbell has a great book on intimacy in marriage, and he says that this togetherness is a many-faceted thing that involves every dimension of our lives. And he says, for example, there is emotional intimacy, which is the sharing of significant feelings. There is intellectual intimacy, the sharing of the world of ideas. There is aesthetic intimacy, the depth of sharing of the experiences of beauty. 
There is recreational in intimacy, sharing actions and fun times. There is work intimacy, sharing in the common task. There is crisis intimacy, standing together against the buffetings of life. There is spiritual intimacy, the sharing in the ultimate concerns, and there is sexual intimacy. Now we're going to assume that Aquila and Priscilla at least shared in some of those experiences of intimacy. We know that there was spiritual intimacy, for they were working together in the common cause of redemption. They shared the joys of work intimacy. They were both involved in the same occupation. The challenge of being a Christian in those days gave opportunity for crisis intimacy, and their experience with Apollos is suggestive that they shared intellectual intimacy. They had this oneness, this, this togetherness, this intimacy that God desires for every marriage. Now, how do you have this? Now, since Margaret's not here to uh, do a checklist on me, I I'm qualified to tell you how it's done. Okay? So I'm going to give you five ways that you develop this togetherness. Number one. You desire it above everything else. You come to the place in your marriage where you're just not satisfied with just existing in marriage. You desire something deeper than that. You desire, you want to come to, to a place where being one means more than anything else. And you're willing to take an intimacy inventory. You need to do that occasionally an intimacy inventory. And you kind of look at Klein Bell's illustrations of what it means to be, in, to be intimately involved with one another in togetherness and oneness. And you just check down the list. How many of those do we fit? Secondly, honesty is required. You must be willing to be open to one another. This is true in any relationship. So that gradually you begin to lower the mask that hides your inner self. And you're willing to be open and honest with one another. Third, you must, you must have genuine concern. And that genuine concern must be expressed in word and deed on a daily basis. You must be concerned about one another. And that concern must be expressed in word and deed on a daily basis. Now, what does that mean? It means that, you, that, 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 that in the morning when you come together for your breakfast to have your prayer time, it, it means something like this. Honey, today, is there anything that you have special need that I can pray about? Is there some, something you're going to be doing today that I can pray for you about? It means a little telephone call perhaps in the middle of the day saying, I want you to know how much I appreciate you. You know, it'll shock them. They probably will go into some kind of a, a coma, you know, with the shock of it. But, you know, let them know that you're concerned about them in word and deed on a daily basis. Number four, there must be a climate of trust. There must be a climate of trust that leaves no doubt about your fidelity and complete commitment to each other. And then five, you need to spend some time with each other. Now, a tornadic wind came uh, across the, the plains of, of, of Kansas and took the top off of this house and, and moved it about two uh, farms away and put it down in a field. 
And this man and his wife were asleep in this bed, and it took this bed out of this house and took it down the road about a mile and, and just set it down in the middle of the road. And this wife was crying, you know, and her husband said, Honey, it's all right. Don't be afraid. Don't cry. And she said, I'm, I'm, I'm shedding tears of joy. I'm so happy. This is the first time we've been out of this house together. <laughs> now, that might sound, uh, you know, a little, a little humorous, but it's too true to be funny, really. Do you, do you spend any time together, just you and, and your spouse? If you're ever going to develop closeness and oneness and intimacy, there's going to have to be some times when you develop that relationship alone. They had togetherness. Secondly, they were able to adjust. They were able to adjust. Now this marriage encountered some crises and conflicts that every marriage encounters. I mean, they went through the same kinds of things that every marriage in, in, in this day encounters. In the first place, the book of Acts says that they were uprooted from their home because they were Jews. They were driven out of Rome by a decree from Claudius in AD 52, and they became refugees, really. And so they were uprooted from their families and their home that, that had been so familiar to them and they were sent out as refugees and wanderers. It was a, it was a, a, a crisis of monumental proportion. Can you imagine the, the pressure that that put on that marriage? Second crisis or conflict that was a part of their daily life was the fact that they had to move so often. I mean, they were on the move, which means that... They were constantly having to meet new friends and develop new relationships and find new homes and, 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 and develop new experiences of confidence and trust with others. And it's a, it's a pressure-packed thing. Third crisis that they encountered was they had no children. One of the saddest people I know tonight is a, is a, is a lady in West Texas the wife of a pastor friend of mine who can have no children. It's the saddest person I've ever met. And, and, I, and, and knowing them and knowing their relationship, I know that that has put a tremendous uh, burden upon them. They've not been able to get over it or adjust to it. Now, when you take that that sadness or despair that comes because no children are there, and you multiply it about a hundred times and put it in the culture, the world, which this was written, where these Jews felt that children were a heritage of the Lord, the fruit of the, the womb was His reward, and that to have children was a blessing of God, and to have none was a curse from God, and you put that kind of pressure on this marriage, and you'll know that they had a lot to deal with. They were able to adjust now, how do you do that? How do you deal with crisis when it comes to a marriage? Now, I'm going to suggest four or five things. First, there has to be communication. There is communication. Before resentment is built up, we must talk about it. That's true in every relationship. 
the lines of communication have to be open. And as there is irritation or conflict or pressure, as a, as a, as a crisis develops in, in a marriage, the thing we need to do is talk about it. If we can't talk about it together, we need to go where somebody can help us talk about it. Now, tomorrow is, is a Memorial Day weekend, holiday. I'm going to be in my office in the morning sitting down with a couple, not from this community, coming from another community. I'm going to try to help them open up lines of communication that have just been clogged up for years so that they can talk about some crisis and conflicts in their marriage so, so, so that somehow they can make adjustments to the unhappiness they experience. You'll be thinking about me about 10 o'clock in the morning. has to be communication. There's some code words. Second code word is assimilation. A simulation. Now suppose that, that Margaret has a conflict with me. Never has happened. Goodness, there's Todd. I forgot about him being here. Uh, scared me to death when I saw him over there uh, with this kind of a ha huh look on his, on his face. It's, it's never happened uh, much, much. Okay. Now, now suppose there is a conflict or a crisis that develops, and we communicate with that, about that. Then there comes the next step, which is a simulation. One of the couples assimilates the other person's conviction or opinion and makes it a part of his own life. If, if, let's just role play a little bit. Your spouse says to you, this is a conflict that I sense in our marriage. This is, this is what's going on. This is wrong here. This is, this is a crisis for us. And, and he finds out, well, what's the problem? She says, this is what I... This is the problem I have with you in our relationship. This is how I feel about this. So he accepts her opinion and conviction and makes it a part. It changes. That's called a simulation. Very seldom ever happens, but that's the idea. There's a third code word. It's called accommodation. Perhaps when the crisis develops and the conflict arises and it emerges, they accommodate. In other words, they, they, they reach a point of agreement and they compromise. They say, okay, I'll come this far, you come this far, we'll compromise. You have your opinion, I have mine, we'll compromise and try to meet in the middle. That's called accommodation. Then the fourth code word is called toleration. Maybe there is not a simulation and there is not accommodation, they, but so they both, there's no compromise, and so they both agree that they will disagree. I have my opinion, you have yours. We can't come to an agreement or compromise, and so I'm going to respect your opinion and you're going to respect mine. We're going to live in that mutual respect that we have a right to our own opinions. It's called toleration. The fifth key, key word, a code word, is called cancellation. Now, when the conflict has been discussed and has been settled either by assimilation, accommodation, or toleration, you must put it aside, put it away. Now, I'm not a very good marriage counselor, but I have sensed that one of the big problems that, that, that just keeps a marriage on, on the brink you know, is that we never put aside the past and the things that have developed in the past that are, that are conflicts. 
And so when the anger comes and the next conflict comes, we not only deal with that conflict, but we bring up, we dredge up the past again. When you reach the agreement, whatever the agreement is, you counsel it out and put it aside, never bring it up again. That's how you adjust. Now let me give you for example. For example, here's a guy who plays golf on Saturday morning. Every Saturday he leaves and it's his day off. He goes out and plays golf. I'm using that because I don't see very many golfers here, you know, and I'm giving you a break, okay? Here's a guy who plays golf every, every day, every Saturday on his day off, and his wife, uh, she thinks he ought to spend that time with her and the children. I mean, he's at work all the time, travels a lot, they're not together. Why can't he spend Saturday with her and the children? That's the conflict. And so he, she sits down with him and and there is communication. She tells him what, what she's dealing with, what's happening in her, you know, about this whole thing. He's gone all the time, and on Saturday he goes out and plays golf. She thinks he ought to spend that time with her and the children. All right? He can assimilate her opinion for his own, and he can quit playing golf on Saturday. That's called assimilation. He can say, I didn't realize that it was that much of a problem, and if, it's that, if that's the way you feel, this will make you happy, I'll just quit playing golf. It's not that important to me. It's called a simulation. Or he can accommodate. That is, they can have accommodation. He can say, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just play nine holes of golf, and I'll be through at noon, so I'll have Saturday off with you, see. And, and, and we'll just compromise. Um, I'll, I'll give Saturday to golf. I'll give Saturday, after, Saturday morning to golf. I'll give Saturday afternoon to you. That's accommodation. Or there can be toleration. He said, no, I'm going to have my golf. You, you know, it's, if you don't like it, well, that, that's just too bad. That, that's that's uh, toleration. And if that, is the, um, if that is the course of direction they choose, then cancellation, it does not apply here because they're right back where they were. Adjust. Are you able to make adjustments? in marriage. One last thing that is present in this marriage that had it all together. For those of you who are timing me, I'm right on time. Okay. Another element is that they put God in the center of their marriage. Now, now you can't leave this out. You've got to see this. In the 18th chapter of Acts, verse 18, they go out as missionaries. In the 26th verse of the 18th chapter, they're involved in Christian teaching. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the church meets in their house. In Romans 16, beginning at verse 3, they're called fellow laborers with Jesus Christ. They're not preachers like Paul. They're not prayers like Simon Peter, but they're fellow laborers with Christ. In the center of their life is their commitment to God. At the heart of their marriage is a vital commitment to God. He is the center of all they do. E. Stanley Jones was a missionary to, the Indi- to, to India, the ashram. He, made, he had great opportunity to share the faith of the gospel. There was a lady who came to the ashram who had a great conflict with her husband. Um, the conflict was so great she refused to cook breakfast for him. She didn't think she ought to have to the way he acted. He thought she ought to. So they just warred over that. 
In the ashram, in the fellowship of Christians, she found love and acceptance. She became a Christian. One day she said to Dr. Jones, E. Stanley Jones, what can I do about this problem? He said, go home in the morning. Tell your husband that you're the cause of all, their, all your problems. She said, I can't do that. He's the cause of our problems, not me. He said, well, just pray about it. The next morning, she got up and cooked him breakfast, first time in months. He came in there. He said, all right, Miss High and Mighty. What, what changed your mind? How, why did you cook breakfast this morning, Miss High and Mighty? She got out on her knees in front of him and said, I've come to confess that I am all, I am the cause of all our problems. She said immediately, he fell on his knees beside her and said, No, you're not the cause of all our problems. I'm the cause of our problems. And there on their knees they prayed and he received Christ. You know what's the problem with many of us? We've left God out of our life. It's not just the problem of this happened in marriage. It's not just that. It's that we have left God out of the center of our life in so many other places. We don't pray together, do we? I said this on Sunday morning, and it's the truth. I preach to couples, I preach to revivals on the home, preached on the home in revivals. And I've had deacons, I've had pastors say to me, privacy. I've had some confess before their church that they go for months, sometimes years, never reading the Bible, never praying with their spouse. We, we, we do. We leave God out of our lives. We don't pray together. We don't read His Word. He's not at the center of our marriage. John Howard Payne was shivering in the cold in the streets of a city on the other side of the world. He was destitute and homesick and alone. And he saw a man, a husband, come home from work. And he walked up and put the key in his, the door of his house and he went inside and through that open door, he saw this wife receive her husband in a warm embrace. And he wrote the words that have been immortalized. Mid pleasures and palaces, wherever we may roam, be it e'er so humble, there's no place like home. There's no place like a home where there is oneness and intimacy and togetherness. There's no place like home where when crisis and conflict come, we adjust and work through it. There's no place like home where God is at the center. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for Christian home that I enjoyed as a youth, as a child. 
I was completely ignorant of it. Father, I confess what a great privilege it was to have a Christian daddy, a Christian mother, a Christian brother and sister. I thank you that I was loved and nurtured in a Christian home. And I thank you for a Christian wife, a Christian home. Lord, I confess that the problems that arise in the parsonage Durant, Oklahoma, I'm responsible for. And I ask your forgiveness as a pastor, as a husband. And Lord, I desire for the anointing, supernatural anointing, as a husband, as a father, and desire oneness and fellowship, togetherness and intimacy, just like you planned it when you created man and woman to live together, and desire it for this people, through Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Now, in the spirit of prayer, there might be an opportunity. There might be some who would desire the opportunity to make public decision. However God leads you to do that, we invite you to do it right now while we stand and sing together.